Hello. Just to let you know that this episode contains strong language, as well as racial slurs used within a historical context. The Cornish mining industry reshaped the landscape and had a profound effect on the people of Cornwall. Fortunes were made and lives were lost. In the last episode, we learnt about the Cousin Jacks, a term of endearment for the miners who emigrated all over the world in search of new opportunities, well-paid work and a better quality of life. Yet, there's a less triumphant side to the story that we don't want to talk about as much. What happened when they got to these foreign lands? How did they respect the indigenous peoples who were there already? And how do we find the right balance between pride and honesty when it comes to the achievements of the Cornish and their impact on the world? I'm Seamus Carey, and I'm looking into the past to make sense of the present. Are we ready to have this conversation? Let's find out in The Reason Why. Episode 5, Harking Back Cornwall is a pretty small area. You know, it covers less than 1,376 square miles and it never had a population that exceeded 375,000 in the 19th century. And yet here we are dominating internationally one industry. I think that's quite remarkable in itself. Um, Today, there's probably over 6 million people of Cornish descent there in the world, far more actually than currently living in Cornwall. This is Dr Sharon Schwartz. She spent the past 25 years researching and retracing the global footsteps of the Cornish Cousin Jacks. She told me how she felt a personal connection to this work, which went beyond the realms of academia. For me, these people are real. You know, my my ancestors are real. They're real people and I love them as if they were my mum and dad or my grandparents, I do remember. I'm proud of what they achieved. I'm also very aware that they were products of their time and their place. So some of the things they said and did aren't palatable to us today. But, you know, that was as it was in those times. You know, they did all they could to put food on the table. What I admire about Sharon is her obvious passion for the subject, but also her honesty about how history isn't always as cheery as we'd like it to be. Well, we know that migrant Cornish mine workers encountered people from many races and ethnicities and faiths and cultures as the global mining industry expanded alongside Britain's ascendancy as the world's preeminent power. That goes without saying. They were dubbed the light infantry of British capital 
and the aristocracy of mine labour. They were also accused of being clannish. They imposed their system of mining and they aspired to be in positions of authority with the best paid jobs. Now, funnily enough, I do actually remember being told about this at school. And when my younger self imagined the Cornish arriving at these places, I saw it like a big blank canvas where they just got to work and didn't bother anyone else. But thinking about it now, that probably wasn't the case. Many mineral deposits that utilised Cornish labour, they didn't operate in virgin territory, but within the ancestral homelands of indigenous nations. In countries, you know, I'm thinking of places like parts of Africa, the USA, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the British colonies, in other words. This didn't sit comfortably with a lot of these indigenous peoples. Uh, First Nation peoples like the Ojibwe in Canada were angered that their lands were sold for mining in the Lake Huron and Superior regions. And they actually occupied a mine at Micah Bay in 1849 and drove away the miners, and many of them were Cornishmen. None of this was mentioned when we learned about it at school. Along with the annihilation of lands came the annihilation of culture, you know, this trying to turn them into good Christians without any thought that their actual, their native culture might have had something to offer us in return that could teach us something about us. I'm thinking of a, a, a man called John Simmons. John Simmons was born in 1850 in St Hilary, a parish near Penzance. He emigrated to the Bruce Mines in Canada, where his father was a mine captain. Now, he became a Methodist missionary and he worked with the Cree and the Ojibwe. I'm quoting from him now. He wrote in the mid-1870s of how his work had resulted in the complete eradication of paganism and a purified society. And he, he speaks of the Ojibwe as a hard people, full of the viciousness of their heathen ways. A decade later, he was writing of how darkness covers the land and gross darkness the minds of the people. And in his ethnocentric and romantic views, Simmons was a man of his times. And he certainly was regarded by his contemporaries as an expert in the knowledge and understanding of these native peoples. And if you thought that was bad, it gets worse. And then, of course, there's slavery. Britain abolished slavery in 1833, which led to the emancipation of slaves in the sugar plantations, for example, in the Caribbean. And yet we know at Cobra in Cuba, was big British mining companies there. But as the mining companies were operating in Spanish jurisdiction, Cuba was still part of the Spanish empire. Slavery there was legal. So at those places in, in Gongo Soco and in Muro Velho and also at Cobre, white plantation owners could buy and sell slaves at will with no regard for keeping family members together. And the Cornishmen that were in senior management positions had the power of life and death over those company slaves, and they were actually free to order beatings if they thought that that was deemed appropriate. Both male and female slaves were punished. And in Cuba, they, the cobra mines, they were laid out or tied to a ladder and publicly flogged. After being whipped, sometimes a further example were made of them by placing them in the stocks. You know, they were tied up there, the lacerations on their backs oozing with blood. But the ill treatment of slaves at Cobra did greatly distress some Cornish eyewitnesses, particularly those who were Methodists, and because back at home in Cornwall, slavery had been roundly condemned in their local chapels, and they were encouraged like not to have sugar in their tea because that encouraged, you know, um, slavery in, in, the, in the sugar plantations. This is true. The Methodists were against slavery. However, it's undeniable that racist attitudes were prevalent during this time. When it was suggested in 1906, 
that Chinese or Italian labour could be introduced to Cornish mines, the Canubian went ballistic. And it's a headline screamed, the opium-loving chink and the garlic-eating Italian will never invade Cornwall. So that gives you a kind of uh, a flavour of the times, if you like. And I mean, the reports and cartoons remind us that various sections of the Cornish press quite happily encoded the distinction and devaluation of the other while promoting the virtue of white Britishness and by implication Cornish ethno-occupational superiority. So, what do we do with this history? Looking at slavery today through 21st century eyes, it was, you know, it was appalling that that really happened at all and that the Cornish were privy and party to, to a system which today we consider to be grossly unjust, unjust, grossly inhuman. You know, you need to see this, the attitudes the Cornish had through the lens of class and race and ethnicity. It's complicated, you know, but it should be acknowledged that, you know, it wasn't all um, this, this kind of triumphal, over-celebratory, filiopietistic you know, vision of, of Cornish migration needs to be tempered with some of the more unpalatable aspects that undoubtedly occurred. Of course, you could argue that the Cornish miners were working class, taking orders from above, and like Sharon said, just trying to put food on the table. You could blame the British Empire and the system that the Cornish found themselves within. Yet whether we like it or not, they took part in awful things that now are unacceptable. It's hard to reach a conclusion on this. I don't think we need to feel white Cornish guilt, nor do I think that we should bury the past and move on. We just need to be honest and know the full story. I believe that the more different perspectives and fresh angles that we can shine on our past ultimately helps us better understand who we are today. You'll notice that a lot of the conversations I've had with people throughout this series often include rhetoric about people coming to Cornwall and changing things, disregarding the culture and taking what isn't theirs. But it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Context is everything. Having looked at some of the more difficult aspects of Cornish history, it was time to continue my quest. How do we define the culture of Cornwall? Remember this man? If you go into the pub, and we go into quite a few, I've never come across any sort of Cornish folk band in the, in the corner. And I can't say we've necessarily sought it out. We're not necessarily the people who would. If they want to have a Cornish language festival, fine. Hold one, and I'm sure they'll get lots of visitors and they'll sell lots of beer. This is Roger. Not his real name, but the second homeowner from episode one. He seemed to be unaware of the existence of any culture here. So, in a follow-up email after our interview, I sent Roger a link to the most Cornish thing I could think of as an example of what he's missing out on. I directed him to the website of the Gorseth Kerno. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, fine, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this 
is Elizabeth Kahn, and she is a pretty big deal. Now, I should explain that Gorseth Kerno is a non-political, non-profit organisation that exists to maintain the national Celtic spirit of Cornwall through poetry, song, dance, music, art and spoken word. It was inaugurated at the famous Standing Stone site, Boscawanun, in 1928, and since then there have been well over a thousand bards created, of which more than half are still alive. To become a bard, you must be proposed by an existing one without your knowledge. You don't have to be Cornish, nor a resident of Cornwall, but you have to have made a significant contribution to the culture of Cornwall. A bit like being knighted, I guess. The bardic ceremony takes place every September in a different outdoor location. It involves sitting in a circle, the blowing of a horn, young maidens dancing, bagpipes, and the giving of the bardic names, which you get to choose yourself. Oh, and how could I forget the robes? Each bard gets their own set of blue robes, which from a distance could look a bit like a Mary from the Nativity meets Monty Python outfit, but I happen to think they look really striking. Anyway, back to Elizabeth. At the epicentre of Cornishness is the Gorseth Kerno, and then at the epicentre of that is you, because you are the Grand Bard. <laughs> yes, I suppose, I suppose, yes, I suppose it is, yes. Gorseth Kerno is really to promote Cornish culture and the Cornish language, Cornish history. People are given bardship for doing things for Cornwall. They might be archaeologists who've been working to find things. They might be artists or musicians or people that particularly concentrate on Cornish music. I think you'll find that an awful lot of things that happen in Cornwall, Cornish things that happen in Cornwall, um, there's a bard at the end of it somewhere. When I shared the Gorseth website with Roger, trying to prove that Cornish culture does exist, he replied in an email saying, Never come across the Gorseth Kerno folks, but good luck to them. The Scots have been dressing up in colourful stuff and inventing stories about themselves and doing very well out of all the visitors for years and years now. No reason for some Cornish Kelty types not to have a go too. It's all over the place. So I wondered if this was correct. Do they do it for money? The people that organise them, are they? is it unfunded? Are people just doing it because <laughs> they love mostly. it? Mostly, yeah, mostly. It's all been, Cornish has all been run by volunteers over the years, really. But your position, do you get a salary or is it just for the love of it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I get travelling expenses. The ceremonies, you know, the bardic ceremonies, that's what people see. They just think, oh, once a year, all these people dress up in blue robes and make a circle and talk in Cornish and, and then they all, you know, but that isn't what it is. I mean, most of the year things are going on. So it sounds like a lot of effort and for not much money. I wanted to know what drove Elizabeth's passion to promote the culture of Cornwall. What for you are the highlights of Cornish identity and culture? What, what are the sort of the best bits for you? Gosh, the history of Cornish and all the different things that they've done over the years. I mean, the Cornish people actually have done so much over the years. The miners and things have been very involved in setting off around the world and the culture, the music, the music and the and the artistic side and the dance. I mean, particularly Cornish dance. I love Cornish dance. And, and of course, now that has built on with the newer people making new dances after the tradition of the older dances and so on. And um, it all makes us different, doesn't it? The Grand Bard has a good point here about people building upon layers of tradition with music and dance. I've given this a lot of thought recently. When does something become a tradition and how does it get assimilated and accepted as culture? There's a lot that goes on in Cornwall 
which was created relatively recently, but gets treated like holy scripture, like it can't be changed or messed about with. It's just the way we've always done it. Whereas actually, a lot of it was made up in the 80s by a handful of individuals. There was one brother and sister duo that I knew I had to speak to. I knew I wanted a Cornishness that was contemporary, that was inclusive, that was fucking good fun. And I'd had glimpses of that, same with Irish, I'd had glimpses of that with Scottish. You know, you could go to a Cayley and have a wild night with young people. It wasn't just for silly old codgers. Mm. Um, and I wanted that. Here he is again, the Cornish cultural godfather, Will Coleman. Growing up, he'd kept his distance from the traditional music scene. But following his return from university, all of that changed. Part of the reason that prevented me getting too much involved in Cornish music is that none of it was very good. A lot of people went, we need to be more like the Irish and, and start copying Irish tunes and start playing that kind of style. Some people said, we need to be more like the Scottish and started doing dances a bit more like that. Yeah. And then actually myself and my sister, etc., we were quite deliberately and consciously going we want to be a bit more like the Bretons. We want that style of music. We want that style of dance and we're going to squeeze that in. And I felt there was a sort of tension and a difficulty around it all. But like with most of these things, you get to a point where you go, I don't care whether you think it's contrived. What matters is whether it's good. There definitely was old traditional music documented from Cornwall. But it's interesting how Will took inspiration from other Celtic nations when it came to updating these tunes for a contemporary crowd. I remember watching a, a documentary about Irish music, uh, River of Sound, Michael O'Sullivan. And one of the things he was looking at is the way that there have been certain pivotal moments where certain people have made decisions in a very conscious way. We're going to take that medieval harp music, but we're going to play it on the Illum pipes and do this dance. And actually, we're going to construct a whole cultural phenomenon. Mm. Does that make it fake? I don't think so. I think we're allowed to do what we bloody like. Mm -hmm. It's our stuff. Remember that. We're allowed to do what we like. It's our stuff. Will soon found that once he'd made something happen, people would take it seriously, as if it was a tradition. When I ran my singing crew in Land Livery, people would say, what's your, what's your group called? I said, we haven't got a name. Because I loved the idea of we were just turning up, you don't know if it's going to be in a crown or it's going to be in a king's arms. We're just going to turn up and have a fucking good sing. Mm. And we're going to have a shout. A shout is another name for singing in the pub. Well, after Hill published Shout Kerno, there are various people going, oh, a shout. This is the thing you do to be Cornish. Now we're going to have a shout and we're all going to stand there with our words in front of us and these are the six verses for South Australia. Now that's, uh, is that, but do you see that <laughs> as a bad thing? Everyone's allowed to do. Because you're sort of being facetious, but the thing is, you asked for trouble there because yeah. You, yeah. you're the guys that made it a thing. Yeah, and I, know. Then... I know. But for me, the reason I got into singing was because of inclusion. It was about being in a pub and the whole place feeling they're part of it or at least having the option to be part of it because all you've got to do is come and wave your mouth around in public. You know, you can, you can hang around on the back or you can be in the inner sanctum and that was why I got into the shout. And do you think you've played quite an integral part in, in shifting that? Not as much as my sister.
Here's Will's twin sister, Hilary Coleman. So we might say they're simpler tunes than Irish and Scottish. They're not so diddly diddly, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. They lend themselves to drones much more, they're much more droney. Because that's the older tunes, they're more modal mm-hmm. and that they work really well. We might say they're more akin to the Breton and then we've got evidence of the connection, of strong Breton connection between Cornwall and Brittany. So we've got good reason to say that. Hilary, along with her partner Neil Davy, a renowned bazooki player, founded the Cornish folk band Dalla. They also were integral in setting up a new form of Cornish social dancing in the early 2000s called Noz Lowen. From a distance, you might be mistaken thinking it was a Cayley, but the Cornish dancing is quite different, more like Breton dancing, and a lot of the music, rather unusually, is in the time signature of 5-4. People love 5 4. If, 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 when you do a nod to and the, the one that everyone will jump on the floor for was a 5 4. Yeah, really. They love it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's now people just writing in that idiom. Yeah. And that's. Which is great. That's, it is great. That's defined a style. And it's it? defining a style. Yeah. But I was still trying to understand what actually defined Cornish music. My feeling is that up to the 1700s, there would have been a style in Cornwall that may, may not have been known elsewhere because the roads were so bad. The way to actually geographically access anything easier by boat than it was by road. With this in mind, and the fact that Cornwall has traded with people overseas for thousands of years, Hillary began to notice a crossover with other cultures. I remember once playing Ancolia Cross. Is that the, one, the minor one? Yeah. And there's this guy from from Zimbabwe and he just got really excited and he went but that's our, we've got that tune we've got that tune really? and started playing his version of that tune yeah 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 um, you know but then sometimes I think yeah but actually if you scrape away at the really old tunes were all modal everywhere yeah yeah sure and actually is there such a fucking difference between English culture and Scottish and Irish culture when you really scrape it down yeah it's just that from the 1700s something happened <laughs> I, I do feel like that's a kind of marker for me. Okay. Because that is when the Industrial Revolution happened and Methodism began and roads improved. Okay. I need to make a confession. I don't think I actually like a lot of traditional Cornish music. Some of it's interesting, and I can see that it serves a purpose, but the majority of it just doesn't turn me on. This might have something to do with the fact that when I was a boy, my dad, who's also a musician, would drag me along to Cornish music-type events where he'd often be playing. Everyone would be serpent dancing and playing bagpipes. Back then, it seemed like the most uncoolest thing in the world. However, I'm a professional musician now. I think about music all the time, and I just can't bring myself to pretend I actually like the music. To me, a lot of it sounds like nursery rhymes. I put this rather controversial point to Hillary. Some of these tunes, do you actually like them? Do you think they're melodically interesting? Okay. So me and Neil, when we first got together, got very drunk on a bottle of whiskey. Mm. (laughs) And we we used to talk and talk about it. Mm. You shouldn't play the music you don't love. You've got to play the music you love. Um, And there's no good flogging a dead horse. And a lot of Cornish musicians, to our mind, at that point in time, were playing the music because they... It was their duty 
as a Cornish nationalist, they had to play these tunes and they were doing us a disservice because they were playing them so ploddily and Mm. so unimaginatively and so da 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 da. So uh, we went, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna make these tunes beautiful, we're gonna make them sing, we're gonna make them dance, we're gonna. And and I said, oh yeah, you cannot make Truro Agricultural Show a good tune, it's impossible. (laughs) And we were like, really, I don't know. How's it going? It goes, off to Truro we will go to see the agricultural show that's how it goes that sounds like a jingle so we all went right you still might think it's crap but anyway we what we felt was we found the beauty in it we unlocked it we create and we actually recorded it and do you think that's down to the arrangement and how it's presented and but the tone of it and how it's played because it could yeah. that could be played in a annoying yeah. way and probably yeah. much less yeah. of course there isn't just trad folk music in Cornwall there's male and lady voice choirs brass and silver bands shanties orchestral music but again I can never really relate to this music as it always feels like it's from another era are you interested in new Cornish music? Well, what do you define as new Cornwall? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I could, Somebody say, playing jazz in Cornwall. Mm, different story. I do like that, actually, but, you know, but it's is not... It, but is that Cornish music? Is, is it Cornish music? Yeah. But we're, we're writing music all the time. We write music all the time. You so guys. Who have you called new music? But do you yeah. do it in the style? Exactly. Our idea of Cornish culture keeps harking backwards all the time. Mm. And actually, it's got to become relevant to today. It's got to become relevant to people of today. The Cornish music scene was a little club with a lot of gingham and, you know, not very attractive. And we wanted to make it attractive. Now, whether we achieved or not was a different matter. We well, got the ball rolling. But, but we said, you know, like with Noslow and, you know, with a born here or drawn here, you know, Noslow, you know, come and join us kind of thing so people culturally think to keep your identity strong you have to be rigid you have to build walls you have to go right we can't let newcomers in over the over the over the border we have to have a really strong definition of what Cornish music is we have to really strong definition of what Cornish language is we have to really and hold on to that fast and that is often how it's perceived and throw out anybody who doesn't agree with us it fucking does not work that does not work. The best way is attraction. Go, this is great, join us. This is brilliant, this is fun. Yeah, so what you say that that way, yeah, well I say it that way, ha ha, you know. <laughs> I mean, so you have on. to be inclusive, but at the same time, no. are you in danger of losing Watering something? things down, yeah. yeah. So like with Noslo and it was like we talked about it and I said, well, if you buy baked beans, you want to know you've got baked beans in the tin. You know, you don't want to open the tin and fight full of other things. So you do have to have some kind of, you know, recognisable, this, this is what to expect, this is what you're going to get. But, you know, all traditions started somewhere. So why don't we just start ours now? This, to me, feels like the right attitude. Celebrate the old and the new, whilst sharing it out in the process. But then, this happened. Okay, it's the 19th of May, 2021. I've been thinking a lot about what Will Coleman said. It's our stuff, we can do what we like. And I felt quite good about things, and so out of interest, I wrote to our old friend, Dick Pemberthy, 
as I thought he might have an interesting angle on Cornish culture. Um, I told him that I'm making a podcast about all things Cornwall. And, you know, I would genuinely like to know his side of the story. Um, and I got a reply. And in his email, Dick Penberthy says, uh, Hi, Seamus. The creative community see the Cornish community as a resource to be plundered rather than co-creating with us. We need promotion, dissemination and enhancement of our existing and highly creative work rather than the Cornish community just providing the volunteers and the Cornish translations for, in inverted commas, creative people coming in and taking money labelled Cornish. Okay. Uh, and then the last bit. Oh yeah, but this th this bit really stuck out on me. Please let me know if you are willing to work with me or if you are merely taking money that would be better spent on truly Cornish endeavours. Hmm. Now there's so much I'd like to pick apart from this email. But my main question is, what defines a truly Cornish endeavour? Because this guy seems to know. I mean, I'm a Cornish man, I live here, I'm making a project all about Cornwall in my shed in Camborne. How is that not Cornish? So far, we've looked at the inclusive side to Cornish culture, but there can also be an unwelcoming, divisive attitude as well. It was about time I went to meet some Cornish nationalists, and I had no idea how surprised I'd be by what I found. Could closing borders be the way forward? Where's the line between pride and power? And what happens when it all goes too far? Find out next time on The Reason Why. The Reason Why was written, presented and produced by Seamus Carey. The music was by him too. This episode featured music by Jim Carey. Additional production on the theme tune was by Mr. B.J. Jackson. Graphic design by Philida Blumel. Photography by Steve Tanner. Special thanks to all our contributors, as well as the Holman Climax Male Voice Choir for the sampling of their 1974 album, The Reason Why. The associate producer was Charlie Bunker. The executive producer was Paul Dodgson. This was an Impossible Producing and Seamus Carey production funded by Arts Council England. Mm -hmm.